welcome to this episode of Nupi's The World Stage podcast. My name is Cedric de Kooning. I'm a research professor here at the Norwegian Institute for International Affairs. And today our guests are Amita Facharya and Stein Turnesen. And we're going to discuss the emergence of non-Western and global international relations. Amitav is Distinguished Professor of International Relations at American University in Washington, D.C., and one of the leading proponents of a movement in international relations scholarship to globalize the theory and focus of international relations research. Stein Tonnesen is a former director of the Peace Research Institute of Oslo. His research has focused on the dynamics of peace and conflict in Asia, and we are going to lean on his knowledge of peace studies and international relations research from that region. Amitav, we are living through a remarkable transition of the global order. Almost all of our institutions of global governance, the United Nations, the IMF, the World Bank, the World Trade Organization, and the systems they tried to govern was only established in the last half century and during a period in world history dominated by one superpower, the United States and its Western allies. Now that is changing with the rise of China, India and others, and the system of global governance will have to adapt to this new multipolar or non-polar system of global governance. And I think you describe it as a multiplex order. So how would you describe global international relations in this context? Do you think it's accompanying this transition and helping us to make sense of it? Or is global international relations co-shaping and helping to drive the transition by providing a theoretical underpinning for rethinking and reimagining how global governance can adapt and transform in the coming decades? Thank you. You're talking about two different things. One is the changes that are happening in the world and um, the unraveling of the post-Second World War uh, internal order, which some people call the liberal internal order. The second thing you're talking about is the understanding of that change through the lens of uh, international relations theory or the study of international relations. So the real problem is there's a mismatch between those two trends. The world is changing, but the study of international relations or the study of that change remains mired in the traditional approaches to international relations theory. So for example, um, as you hinted, the institutions and uh, also the power of uh, the Western nations that was behind the uh, liberal international order, the post-Second World War order dominated by the US, that has uh, substantially declined uh, both in terms of uh, the relative power of the West vis-a-vis -vis the rising powers like China or India, but also in terms of the institutions that were created by the, the Western powers uh, to manage that order. Th there is no question that they are in decline. But we still think of the, you know, when we study international relations, use the theories and concepts to study, we still think in terms of you know, the the ideas of the 50s and the 60s. So that is really a big gap between the world of reality and the world of ideas. Global international relations tries to basically update our knowledge 
about uh, how we study international relations in the light of this massive changes that has taken place, that have taken place in the last uh, dec few decades. Thank you so much. And that takes me to Stein, because Stein, you've studied uh, China and India and others in the region. So that makes me wonder, to what degree uh, do we see uh, an interest in peace studies and international relations in this region? And, and to what degree is it uh, helping us to open up the discipline and to invite new non-Western perspectives on the discipline? My experience is that there is considerable interest in peace research in many Asian countries, but it varies very much from one country to another. And there is one country in particular that is keen on this all the time. So we, notion, we notice that they take contact with the Peace Research Institute Oslo and also with the Stockholm International Peace Research Institute all the time. And this is South Korea. They are really so much focused on peace issues. You also have quite a lot of cooperation with India and with some of the Southeast Asian countries. Less so perhaps with China, which has a more political approach to peace that is not uh, exactly what we are doing. But they do well know the uh, CIPRI yearbook. No, and I notice also from our work that uh, uh, research in China is quite uh, comfortable with peacekeeping and starting to show an interest mm. in mediation. But uh, I think there's very few institutes of peace studies uh, in China, maybe one that I'm aware of. Exactly. There is more in India. Amitav, uh, I understand that global international relations is not necessarily a revisionist rejection of Western international relations. Although, of course, there are some theories like decolonization that try to deconstruct and disrupt the dominating effect of Western international relations. But Western international relations theory is so well established and there's so much path dependency built into the system, as you mentioned earlier, uh, because of the body of existing scholarship or the existing journals and the existing IR schools. So what would be your suggestions? How should the field go about opening up to non-Western international relations in a way that won't just perpetuate Western hegemony? So what I call the call global international relations is kind of a bridge. So on the one hand, you have uh, theories, um, let's call them mainstream theories, like realism, liberalism, constructivism. And they have been around, uh, particularly realism and liberalism, and constructivism came in the 1990s. But still, this together, they have dominated the curriculum, the you know, teaching programs of uh, major universities, not only in the West, but also outside the West. Then you have uh, theories that uh, challenge them, the critical theories, dissenting theories. Uh, so there you could include postmodern theories, uh, Marxist theories, but also um, the um, decolonial, postcolonial theories. Uh, I kind of change, uh, use uh, post-colonial and decolonial interchangeably. So the thing is, these are two extremes. Uh, they don't talk to each other. They talk past each other. Uh, especially when you talk about uh, post-colonial and decolonial, uh, they, are, uh, they want to change the discipline, kind of reboot the discipline rather than reform it. So what Global IR does is quite distinctive, which no other approach has done it. So it tries to bring this uh, you know, dialogue, uh, get this uh, you know, very 
uh, extreme approaches to dialogue with each other, find a uh, common ground or bridge so that they can actually talk to each other rather than talk past each other. And I don't think any theory uh, does that, any other theory does that. This doesn't mean that uh, the traditional sort of mainstream theories are uh, left alone. Uh, so global lawyer challenges, challenges them to adapt, to learn, to account for the voices and experiences and agency claims of non-Western societies. So they cannot be just agis. Uh, at the same time, he doesn't want to uh, say that these are irrelevant and they have nothing to contribute. There are a couple of reasons for that. One is that uh, uh, theories are not monolithic. No theories, you know, whether it's post-colonial or the mainstream theories. So there are some theories in the so-called mainstream camp which are more sensitive to non-Western voices, like constructivism, which is something I have done myself. So, um, so and also you can, they're also changing. The theories are not static. They're, they are changing, they're adapting. So liberalism, realism, all are adapting. And um, also many scholars in the developing world still buy into them. Um, we cannot set up say realism is totally obsolete in the non-Western world. A lot of uh, scholars in India and China, for example, uh, they buy into realism. So it will be arrogant intellectually and also impractical for a global IR approach to say, hey, everything that has been done is useless. Let's start all over again for a variety of reasons. So on the other hand, the post-colonial and decolonial approaches, they, they have a lot to contribute. They had already made a contribution. But again, they kind of converse among themselves. It's like conversation among the like-minded. And uh, in that sense, they never really relate to uh, except challenge and critique. They never really have a dialogue with the other theories, uh, so-called mainstream theories. So what Global IR is trying to do is to find a bridge, um, challenging mainstream theories to be more inclusive and also urging post-colonial and decolonial theories to actually uh, relate to other uh, theories so that we can actually have a mutual dialogue and mutual learning. Uh, this, by the way, um, is not uncontroversial. Uh, some people think global IR is too differential to mainstream theories. But uh, on the other hand, that's what global IR does. It's, that's what it, why it is distinctive. So uh, I asked you about uh, how do we avoid perpetuating Western hegemony. So I want to ask you, how effective is this breach building role going so far? Um, do you think you are effective in, in playing this bridging role? In my uh, understanding and what I have seen in uh, terms of the, you know, the literature that is coming up on global IR, I think it is uh, successful so far. There is increasing number of uh, uh, writings, journals, books, book chapters uh, that speak to global IR, especially in this bridge-building approach. And um, we have a new section on global IR, called Global IR section at the International Strategy Association, which had its first uh, set of panels this year, uh, just last week in Montreal. And uh, also, you know, there's a Global IR chair now uh, being advertised in the uh, in Netherlands. So obviously, it is uh, catching on. If you look at the citation uh, count on Global IR, it's really have increased quite significantly since uh, 
uh, was, um, 2014 when the idea was first promoted. So I think it is uh, getting popular. It's not, again, going to uh, be completely uncontroversial. Um, but uh, I think uh, in, in, in what I can see from my understanding and my conversations with other scholars, it is extremely popular, especially in the non-Western world. So if you look at Indonesia, if you look at Brazil, you look at Turkey, China, India, uh, and Russia, uh, South Africa, it is, and Europe too. Uh, maybe not uh, so popular in the United States because the United States still has the kind of bastion of the traditional IR. But outside of the United States, global IR has really caught the imagination of especially younger scholars. Excellent, because I was actually at Globe at the International Studies Association last week and attended some of the global IR panels. And one very interesting point that came up that someone asked was, you know, who who benefits from global IR? And this person that asked the question was from a university in Germany, and he said, you know, it's it's maybe it's white dudes like myself who publish on this, and then I get high, uh, uh, you know, high interest. But what you were just saying now is that. Uh, Actually, uh, there is a real interest that you see uh, outside of, of Western IR family. Stein, you spoke about uh, a growing interest in peace studies and international relations in China and India and Asia, uh, Southeast Asia more generally. What do you think is the prospects for the development of, of this kind of new non-Western approaches to peace studies and international relations in that region? Let me first say that I'm a historian and the peace researcher. I'm not not IR scholar as such, but I find uh, global IR interesting, and I think that it's perfectly fine that it's deferential to the traditional theories, because I've noticed in my meeting, particularly with Chinese scholars, that they really belong in those categories. Whenever I met a Chinese scholar, I would see that one was a realist and another one was a liberal and one was a constructivist. So I kind of guessed from that that these theories kind of cover many of the possibilities. Uh, then one thing that I'm, I'm a little skeptical of is this non-Western thing. Because I think on one hand that the non-West is so much, so it can be dominated perhaps by Asian perspectives. And then Asia already is also 60% of the world's population. And I also react a little to grouping together the West as one thing. Because I don't want to be seen as a Western scholar if Western scholar is seen to be mainly American. <laughs> <laughs> I want to have some kind of credit for being a European. So I think the most important thing is not where you come from or where you are based, also Amitav, you, you are born in uh, India, that's right. And you are a Canadian citizen. And American. And you an American citizen as well, and you work in Washington, D.C. So you, you are the perfect global person. And I think the most important thing for uh, global IR should be to reflect the experiences of the various parts of the world. And that includes many different parts of Asia. And one of my concerns as a historian is that there is so much left of Eurocentrism still today in conceptions of history. Perhaps less when we look at contemporary affairs now because uh, Asia has become so important economically and politically. But when you think of the Second World War, for instance, 
Europeans and people around many other places in the world have no sense of the central role of China in the Second World War. You have two world wars, one in Europe, and including the Soviet Union, and one in the Pacific, and the United States was part of both of them. But China was the country that had the second largest number of lost lives in the Second World War. And there, is, there are fabulous books being published by that, not least by the author Rana Mitter. But this has not entered public knowledge yet. So my suggestion on this basis is that for global IR, the most important thing is not where the research is done or who is doing it, but that it includes the experiences from Asia, Africa, Latin America, Europe, and North America, and also, of course, the Pacific. That's a wonderful vision, but uh, uh, as you say, that, that history is not known partly partly perhaps because of the power relations that we've seen and, and where the knowledge is held and who has a dominance over that. Uh, I myself am a South African who is now in uh, also a, a dual citizen in Norway. And I know that when I was still in South Africa, you know, you would, I would be invited to conferences to speak about something related to Africa. And now that I'm based at NUPI, I can speak about anything I would like to speak about. Um, so, you know, that relational power you can really, really see when you, when you move between these two different worlds. But, Amitav, do you agree with Stein? How, what is your take on the prospects for development of, of uh, I don't know if we want to use the word non-Western approaches, let's say global IR? I, I do agree with Stein. However, let me, uh, maybe I can add some clarification uh, from the perspective of global IR. So, when I started working on global IR, uh, I had a decade or so of uh, working on what is called non-Western IR theory. And my partner in this was Professor Barry Buzan, which is very well known. And uh, I think the idea of doing non-Western was to sensitize people, uh, like the academic community, that uh, IR has for too long been, as science said, Eurocentric or Western-centric. And uh, Putting non-Western right there caught people's imagination. Sometimes, you know, in support, but sometimes the kind of reaction that we just heard from Stein, what is non-West? Now, um, of course, uh, the non-West is very diverse. There's no question. The West is diverse in itself. As you mentioned, the U.S. is not the same as Europe. Thank you. Uh, but, uh, but uh, of course, now... Uh, these days, the West is back in some ways with uh, conflicts uh, like Russia, uh, Ukraine war in the, in the media and uh, policy circles. The rise of the uh, return of the West, people are talking about. But generally, uh, there was always divisions within the West. But West is a bunch of what twenty, thirty countries. Uh, I don't know exact number, but the non-West is about one hundred and fifty countries. <laughs> so there's bound to be differences uh, and regional variations sub-regional variations. However, at the same time, they all there was some sort of a common thread in the so-called non-West, and it's nothing to do with geography, nothing to do with material conditions, like economic levels of development. It has to do with the fact that most of the non-West had a colonial, shared colonial history, and an aspiration 
to find its voice in international relations. So if you go back to the Cold War period, the term third world that people talk about, you know, again, the same thing. What is the third world? It's uh, so diverse. But they all had that kind of post-colonial or colonial history and post-colonial aspiration to find their voice. Now, that has also become more um, sort of fragmented now. I mean, look, uh, look at China and India, uh, which are called Power South, the rising powers of the South. And then you have countries in Africa and uh, uh, Middle East or uh, uh, South Pacific, which are small and poor and uh, have none of that uh, clout in international affairs. So uh, considering all that, after you know, playing with the idea of non-West to actually provoke a reaction uh, from the West and exactly the kind of reaction uh, that we heard from Stein, that what is the West, what is the non-West? I decided in 2014 to transcend these two binaries and call it global IR. So global IR does not make the West versus rest distinction, unless it is for convenience, analytical convenience. Uh, sometimes it's sort of like, it's a term that you can use because there's no better term. Our global South, third world, all this are problematic. But global IR tries to bring both the uh, strands of so-called the Western, non-Western together, but also regional variations, regional approaches to create a, you know, dialogue um, among multiple perspectives. A final point is that uh, global is not a given. It's not a geographic notion. It is socially constructed. So what is uh, your sense of global is not my sense of global. So for my uh, idea of global, global is perfectly compatible with the local. Global and local are not mutually exclusive. They're mutually constitutive. So you cannot have global IR by uh, ignoring regional, local, national perspectives. Uh, at the same time, you cannot purely have regional, national, or sub-regional perspectives unless they have the travel, they have wider applicability. Uh, so if you can have a Chinese school of IR, but it should not be about explaining China only. Just like the English school of IR is not about you know, explaining England. Uh, so what our global IR is trying to do is encouraging our national uh, regional approaches, also macro approaches. But where there are national and regional approaches, the challenge is to make sure that it's, uh, it, has, um, it can travel, it has wider applicability, and it's not like a fad, or it's not, not like the uh, you know, writings of one person. It can actually lead to a research agenda. So I think that's, that's what's happening. And that's why global IR holds more promise than any other previous approaches that simply recognize these regional schools but dismiss them. That makes a lot of sense because um, obviously the focus on, on you know, national IR or civilizational IR or regional IR does also create this kind of competition and tensions between regions. Um, but if we then think in terms of macro IR, I mean, we are living in the age of the Anthropocene, where we do have global level phenomenon, and we have uh, the financial system, the global financial system, or the energy system, or the food system, the, the international or global peace and security architecture. Um, does this also lead to an analysis that goes beyond the state, uh, relationship between states, and study more uh, global systems and how those systems of systems are embedded in each other to create phenomenon. Is that something you see also emerging in the field? 
You asking me or asking Stein? Uh, let's start with you, and then I'll okay. go to see if Stein also has a view on this. So for the, for the global, you have to bring in uh, what is called transnational and local. So transnational, some of the issues like uh, climate change, pandemics, uh, that respect no national boundaries. I mean, uh, I just want to uh, point out that, my, that the chair that I hold is called UNESCO Chair in Transnational Challenges and governance, and uh, we chose this title deliberately uh, to say it's not just international or interstate. So those issues will be uh, front and center. But then also in terms of actors, uh, if you're dealing with transnational challenges, you cannot only think of states as the agents or actors. So there has to be also non-state actors, international organizations, and uh, international institutions and the like. So if you bring this together, I think global IR, and this goes back to your original point, it's global IR, how does it relate to the changes that are happening? Because global IR really conceives world order as not the traditional sort of a expansion of a, the Eurocentric international system, but a, a truly inclusive, say, global uh, system in which the voices and uh, um, experiences of non-Western, not only states, but also societies uh, find the, their way. And, uh, and that is much better suited to capture uh, the, the challenges we face, uh, like climate change and uh, pandemic and the like, because we are broadening the horizon of uh, uh, issue areas that you study from you know, war and traditional war and peace to, say, uh, environment and public health. But you're also bringing in new actors who deal with these challenges. So that's why I have a term called the multiplex world. The multiplex world order, um, unlike the multipolar world order, uh, is not about just power, or hard power. It also looks at uh, the role of non-state actors, ideas, and uh, also the the totality of a human experience that, that that should be the subject of study of international relations as a discipline, but it hasn't been. Stein, so let's go to you as well on this question, and I want to add another dimension, and that is we are living in a world where we see at the same time you know, trends towards globalization, but countered by greater nationalism, populism, um, within nations, movements towards uh, you know greater uh, localization, internal perspectives, uh, or turn to perspectives uh, that are focused on on more the local rather than the global. Where does this leave us in terms of this this uh, study of, of of peace studies and and international relations as a kind of a global level phenomenon? Let me start by saying that in uh, <clears throat> international history. Um, a great book that realized some of the global IR ambitions was The Global Cold War by my Norwegian compatriot Odd Arne Vestad, who is now a professor at Yale. Um, in 2005 it was published first and it's been, been translated into many languages because the Cold War became a characterization of one period. But the whole concept was built on the East-West dimension and on the European experience, because it was in Europe and between the United States and the Soviet Union that it was cold. 
when he wrote the global cold war he included all the hot wars in latin america africa and asia in his concept of the cold war and kind of globalized that history in a way that was quite revolutionary in international history this realized some of what amitav is talking about here within the field of international history but there is another thing that has happened which touches on your question cedric um, and this is a fear of mine that you get a kind of critical studies that are actually nostalgic about very authoritarian periods of the past and i'm afraid of this at the moment because there is an authoritarian trend in so many parts of the world including west north east uh, all the sky directions we we find this trend at the moment and i've met some of those in also in area studies and ir scholarship one is the dream of recreating the mandala state in southeast asia with no borders borders are good for peace when you have a state system you need the borders and the best borders are those that are fully agreed upon because then you can cross them without problems the contested ones are dangerous but if if you get the kind of break up of a state as you see now in myanmar it's horrible another example i have is david kang's books about the past where he claims that China and the whole East Asian state system was so peaceful in the south before in the past before it was contaminated by the west which i think is an erroneous and false description of particularly of the 17th century which was very warlike and then i met this also in a book published in singapore about china by cheng yongyan who is the or was the head of the east asia institute it was published in 2010 and it was called the chinese communist party as organizational emperor and it was in a, in a way an argument for china to return to the tribunal system where it would be at the top of a hierarchy and where other countries would be differentials to differential towards towards china so i had the chance to 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 debate this with him at a military conference once in china where some of the military officers in China actually agreed with me that you should better have a world built on equal states than try to recreate uh, hierarchies. So I want to, to ask Amitav, do, are, are, you, are you also worried like me about this kind of trend or do you think it has a positive role to play in breaking up, non, breaking up what one might call Western hegemony? Well, this, uh, what you described, is actually one of the core debates in global IR today. So because global IR opens up the investigation, the scope of investigation to cultural history, to, um, say, the role of uh, including empires, uh, not just the Westphalian system, but the hierarchical systems, the suzerain systems, because it casts a broad history, and for a good reason. If you study Westphalia as the basis of international relations, you have 400 years to study. If you limit yourself to that, then it's basically you're legitimizing Western dominance because Westphalia and the rise of the West almost coincided. But if you go back in history to, we have, what, 5,000 years of known history, then you will find many different systems, uh, some uh, more hierarchical, some, uh, you know, 
absolute autocratic divine monarchy, universal empire. You start from Egyptians, Sumerians. You also find some um, systems like Greek city-states, the Indian republics. Um, you find all kinds of uh, state systems. So your scope of investigation is much broader. And it doesn't necessarily uh, point to the fact that the past was all dominated by hierarchical systems. That's, uh, that's not true. So going back to then the question, uh, what is the benefit and the risk of studying the past the way you described? So my own position on this, and I'm writing a book about this now, which is a history of world order for the last 5,000 years, that uh, the contemporary international system has multiple global roots. So the idea of a republic has multiple roots, uh, republics in Rome, republics in India, republics in actually the Maya republics as well. Uh, <clears throat> similarly, some institutions, maybe certain institutions like Westphalia may not have equivalent in other parts of the world, but it's norms like you know, freedom of the seas or uh, empire. Empire has been one of the most successful and long-lasting institutions uh, in the history of world order. So you, you've studied them, but don't expect that they will be returning. History doesn't rep repeat itself, but history throws up possibilities of different types of world ordering. So you learn from history, but not necessarily expect history to revive itself. So this brings me to the question of uh, what are the potential abuses of studying civilization? There are some critiques that say global IR is civilizationalism, ethnicism, because we're encouraging countries or scholars to study their past. That's completely wrong, because global IR has basically very strong arguments from day one against uh, cultural exceptionalism. In fact, that was in my very first uh, uh, writings on, on this subject. Uh, and also, uh, in, in global IR, if you study history and bring out new ideas and new possibilities, and then you can you compare them with the institutions that we consider as universal. Is the Westphalia really a universal system? Or is it like a very transient uh, period? Even we don't agree that Westphalia actually changed Europe completely. But uh, anyway, if you are aware of the downside, the risks of abusing civilization, and some uh, countries do that, policymakers do that. I mean, in China, Xi Jinping, in India, in fact, in a more dramatic way, uh, the Modi government is a, uh, reviving Indian civilization in uh, Turkey, Erdogan is doing that. So that has no place in global IR. But for scholars, learning from the past and creating and developing theories is actually very important. Why? Because this is not, most scholars who study their past are not trying to legitimize their governments. They're actually trying to find ideas so that they can actually have a dialogue with their Western colleagues. And um, in fact, in India, you'll find that while the government of the day invokes Kautilya to say India's greatness, there are other scholars who are anti-government and they will invoke King Ashoka, who was the most tolerant king in Indian history, very secular, exactly, what, uh, exactly the opposite of what the current government is doing. So you can also use civilizational history uh, for positive ends. And, uh, but more important, the scholars who are trying to do, uh, go back to the past, they look at the West and say, hey, the West is always, and um, there are 
West is a civilizational concept. I mean, the United States is a civilization state. Uh, so they have been doing this for many, many, many uh, decades. Why can't we do it? But maybe you can have a conversation. This gives us some ideas, some intellectual resources so we can have a conversation with them uh, on our own terms rather than you know, borrowing what happened in Westphalia or what happened in the Roman Empire or, or the Greeks. So that way, global IS serves a purpose when it draws on civilization. But you have to be reflexively, self-consciously aware of exceptionalism, nationalism, and the political abuse of history um, that uh, happens in history, but it's going to happen in IR. But I believe most IR scholars that are doing this uh, are not reviving the tributary system or the Maurya Empire or the Islamic Caliphate. They are genuinely interested in mining ideas and concepts which seem universal, different from Westphalia, and then you can have a conversation. So they are finding the space on the global conversation and IR theory using this concept, which they couldn't do before. Stein, uh, Amitav, uh, I think we just got warmed up now and I wish we could carry on for another half an hour or an hour. But unfortunately, this is all we have time for in this episode of uh, the World Stage podcast. So thank you both. And we hope to see you back at NUPI very soon. Thank you. Thank, thank you. you.